Revelation chapter number 5, beginning in verse number 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. This isn't part of the message, but if you were to look at your Bible, you would notice that one, two, three, four, five, six, there's typically seven ridges on the back spine of your Bible, and that is because um, this is related to this seven-sealed book. Verse number, um, verse number two, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? No man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. One of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. When he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints." They sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nations. This is going on in heaven. They are singing and shouting praises about being saved by the blood of this lamb that was slain. Verse number 10 and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing." And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. The four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. I want to speak this morning on the subject, the heavenly recipe for worship. You may be seated. Thank you for standing in honor of the Word of God. The heavenly recipe for worship. What we just read about is John's take, John's observance of true worship. It wasn't the nonsense called worship that is common in churches today which, to be honest with you, is really nothing more than a love fest with one's own human emotions. If you compare biblical worship to what we 
commonly see and experience in churches today really is people aren't truly worshiping the Lord. They're just trying to drum up an emotional experience. Without those emotions, there isn't anything like what we just read about here in Revelation chapter number 5. A good recipe is not simple. You must have quality ingredients. You must have proper technique. My wife often, when she's cooking things, she said it's not just about what you put in it. A lot of cooking comes down to technique and processes. Measurements, timing are all important, and every recipe has a personal touch to it. Now, when it comes to worship, God made us unique, and our personalities are not all the same. You know, I must, ha- I must confess that the way that I worship may be a little bit different than the way that you worship. I've been around people that are very loud and very vocal when they worship. When I'm truly worshiping God, I, and I've said this before, and I'll, I'll say it again, I'm not typically motivated to run the aisles and to shout and to make loud noise. Typically, I get pretty quiet, and typically, I just start shedding tears. My When my heart's touched, usually tears start running down my cheeks, sometimes uncontrollably, and that's a lot of times in my personality, that's the way that I worship. But sometimes I do get excited. And I don't think that we have to have some type of an, uh, you know, emotional or feel like that God actually came inside and motivated us to do something. Listen, you get excited at a ball game, right? Here at the end of our text, these creatures shouted and they said, Amen, right? Thank you. <laughs> they said, Amen. Let's try that again. Can everybody just at once with me cueing you, can you say amen real loud? Amen. See, that wasn't so harmful, was it? Did anybody get hurt? All right, several people got hurt. Your brother Andrew got. Now that's from singing Saved by the Blood of the Crucified One. I told Brother Andrew, I said, now I can't even preach. I don't have any voice left. He has no voice. He's leading the singing. Every song he picked was opera songs. (laughs) I was going to say women's songs, but you can't do that these days. I just did, kind of. In recipes, back, back to, let's get back on track here. Food is subjective. It really is. And, I, you know, I've, we've all been around people, maybe you're one of those people, that the way you like your food, it's not a matter, it's not subjective to you. It's a matter of right or wrong. If you like food differently than I do, you're wrong. We've all been around those people. It's like, well, you know what? I don't like it the way that you like it. And that's the fact of the matter. Food is subjective. You know, I'm sure that many of you had Thanksgiving meal at family members and different people in the family all brought their dishes. And so we all have different ways that we prefer our dishes. And when other people bring food, you don't always get that particular dish the way that you like it. I had a great time with the kids during the assembly before Sunday school, talking about what they had for Thanksgiving. You know what some of them said they had for Thanksgiving when I asked them? Food. (laughs) And I said, what a coincidence. So did I. 
But, you know, they all had their favorite things that uh, they liked for Thanksgiving. But food is subjective. When I say subjective, that means it's influenced by personal feelings, tastes, or opinions. Worship, though, is objective. Worship is based on factual data. If we want to know how to worship God, we should know what the Bible says about worship, certainly not what some modern author or even some great church leader who has built a mega church. You know, there are churches in America, they used to be built upon the Bible. They used to be built, a a big church or a well, a strong ministry was built on strong biblical preaching. But what attracts the crowd today? We all know what it is. It's the music. People go for the music. And if you took the music out, then they may say, well, the preaching's good. But sadly, they go for the music. And most of what we see called worship in American churches today is totally subjective and not objective whatsoever. If we're worshiping God, shouldn't we be worshiping Him according to what He likes? What He approves of? Well, I don't like that kind of music. What does it matter what we like? It should matter what the Lord likes, because after all, He's the one that we're worshiping. Within this chapter we find all the different ingredients and elements that are a recipe for heavenly worship. What we see going on around the throne of God is what we should see going on in our own lives and certainly in our churches. And the first thing that I want to point out, number one, is corporate worship. Corporate worship. In verse number 8, there are four beasts, there's four and twenty elders, in verse number 11, you have many angels. In fact, and, and, and I don't know the doctrinal significance here in verse uh, number 11. I'm sure there is one. You have 10,000 times 10,000. That is 100 million angels. And then in addition to that, you have thousands of thousands. Now, the best way I know to come up with something for that is 1,000 times 1,000 is 1 million. And so certainly there are 101 million angels around the throne of God worshiping him. You've got a lot of people all doing this together, corporately. In Genesis 22, verse number 5, the first mention of worship had nothing to do with music. It was Abraham heading to the mount with his son Isaac. And he said to the people, he said, Me and the lad, we are going to worship, and then we're coming back. And so, obviously, Abraham knew that God was going to do something miraculous because God had made a promise that of Isaac that Abraham would have descendants and so forth. And yet, God had tested Abraham and said, I want you to sacrifice your only son, Isaac. That's the first mention where you find the word worship in the Bible. The second mention I find a little bit interesting, Exodus 24 and verse number 1, and he said unto Moses, this is God speaking, come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. God says, I want you to come up on Mount Sinai, 
And uh, I, I don't want you to get too close, but I want the 70 elders, I want Aaron, I want all of you to come up corporately and worship. Now, I'm not saying here that worship is not also private. Worship is both private and corporate. But the reason, please listen to this, this is not my main point, but this is a main point in this message. The reason that we don't have vibrant, dynamic corporate worship is not because we don't have a good performance on the platform. It's not because we don't drum it up by singing the same song or the same chorus over and over and over and over until you finally get emotional. And by the way, that's what the heathen do. You know, the heathen work up an emotional form of worship by repetition, 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 repetition. It does something to the human psychology, and that's what generally happens. The reason we don't have vibrant, dynamic worship corporately is not because of our music. It's not because of the performance from the platform. It is because we don't have private worship. If you would worship the Lord privately like you ought to, I guarantee you when we come together, we would be a whole lot more prone. You'd be learning how to be less self-conscious privately between you and God as you talk to Him, as you worship Him, as you praise Him, as you hold up your hands and say, Lord, Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy, O Lord. I praise You. You are a wonderful God and You are holy and You are beautiful and all of the different accolades, yeah, they're not, they're not sufficient. They sound so empty compared to what He is worthy of, but it's what God wants to hear. If we would do that in our private closet, if we would do that in our own personal lives when we come together corporately, it wouldn't have to be drummed up from the platform. It would be a natural outpouring. Hence the appetite in church for entertainment, self-help, children's programs, and social benefits. Too often, that are, those are the determining factors of why, of what church that someone picks. Well, I like their music better. It makes me feel a certain way. I like those self-help messages that make me feel good about myself. I like uh, the, the programs that they have for our children. You know, let me say something to you, and, and I, I make no apology for this. There are some of you, as families, that when we've got something going on for your kids, you're here faithfully. But when we don't have our children's programs, you just stay home. What does that tell, what does that say about you? That says that all you're doing this for is for your kids, what kind of an example when you don't participate in the things or you're teaching your kids that, hey, if it's not about you, then we're not interested. Guess what? That's what the appetite came from in the modern narcissistic worship in churches today. People come into the church, say, what do you got for me? What do you got for my kids? We need to be coming in like these around the throne of God and saying, what do I have to give to him that is worthy? Number two, there is an emotional element. Verse number four, 
Verse number four, John says, and I wept much. He wept. There is an emotional element in worship. I'm not minimizing that. I'm just simply saying that true worship is not a love fest with our own emotions. People, we like emotional outpourings. Listen, people will subject their spirit to all kinds of crazy things. People watch scary shows because it produces an emotional... Why would you want to do that? This past Halloween, you know, there's all, there, there's all kinds of stuff. It seems like that anything that's on TV during the month of October is going to be gore and murder and all of that stuff. It's horrible. How is that entertaining? To, to produce, to, to buy on purpose, produce fear. Why do we find it entertaining to watch something that makes us cry? We think, wow, that was a powerful movie or a powerful song or a powerful performance. Why? Because we have that emotional outpouring. It's part of our human nature, the way that God has made us. But the problem is, is God made us that way so that we could direct that toward Him and not toward ourselves. We have a limited capacity of emotion. Did you know that? Now, some, some are people are more emotional than others, and I understand that. I've been accused at times of having ice water in my veins. I'm not not emotional. But the Bible does talk about ruling our spirit, right? If we don't rule our spirit, then we're like a city broken down without walls. We become vulnerable. So there is an emotional part of worship, but we all have a limited capacity of emotion. Do you know the things that used to stir your emotions oftentimes will become commonplace? Do you know that grief and trauma in your life will produce various forms of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder? Do you know that if you are under grief, if you have grief after grief after grief, it's almost sometimes as if the emotional capacity, you just used it all up and you find yourself looking at things that used to stir you emotionally. You just look at it like a zombie, just numb, and it no longer stirs that emotion. Do you know what that is? That's our human limited capacity for emotion. Our human body is limited to what it can handle emotionally. Most of the Lord's people, listen to this, use up their emotions to the world and then sit in church like a statue. Yesterday was rivalry weekend, rivalry Saturday. And I would have to say congratulations to the Dillers, condolences to the Hardings and the Hindles, Brother Michael, he's not here. Brother Scott, tell him I said that, my condolences you don't know what I'm talking about, Michigan beat Ohio State yesterday at Ohio State. And I say congratulations to my daughter-in-law who is from Michigan. You know what? Every year, one wins and one loses, right? And whatever your rivalry was, if you had one yesterday, it's like somebody wins and somebody loses. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying a football game. There's nothing wrong with enjoying some entertainment, but you know what? We live in the day and age. You know, it used to be 
back in the day that people, even if they weren't real spiritual, they never missed church because that's where they got music. They would come to church because they'd get to sing and they get to hear the instruments played. That was their that was their music fix, but now we've got it pumped into our ear whenever we want, and so, well, we don't need that. What am I trying to say? Too many of us as God's people, we use all of that human capacity of emotion up for what the world has out there, and then when we come to church... We sit like a statue and not so much as even a grunt when something is said or sung that should be meaningful. Please, don't misunderstand me here this morning. This is not a guilt trip message, okay? But I think that we could all agree when we compare with where we're at with what we just read about in Revelation 5, I think that we all should feel guilty to some degree or another. Maybe we all ought to feel way more guilty than we do feel. God is storing and keeping record of our emotions. Did you know that? We, we just read about some vials of odors that are poured out that are prayers of saints. But consider Psalm 56 and verse number 8. Thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle. This is the psalmist talking to God. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in thy book? God's keeping a record of our emotions. And when we stand before him, it's say, well, I'm sorry, Lord. I, I know I didn't get too excited in church when the preacher was preaching on the blood. I know when we were singing Saved by the Blood of the Crucified One, it just, you know, it just wasn't my thing. It didn't turn my crank. It just, I'm just not an emotional person. Can you imagine what the Lord is going to do to show you how emotional that you are? And He's going to show you every time that you got all worked up about something, everything that excited you and made you happy, everything that stirred you, maybe when you got angry. So what do you mean you're not emotional? And he'll just show us the whole gamut and we'll be standing there going, yeah, that was pretty dumb of me to say. My defense didn't hold very much water. He's storing it all. And he's keeping record of our emotions. Brothers and sisters, let's not waste it all on the things of this world. Let's not waste it all on the things that mean something to us. Make sure that you give God the first of your emotions. When Job was grieving, Job lost his children, he lost his wealth, he lost his health, and what does the Bible say? He fell down and he worshipped the Lord. He said, God, you get the first of my emotions. Number three, we find here in verse number eight, I already mentioned it. We find this golden vial full of odors, which are the prayers of these saints. I don't know what these odors smelled like, but I guarantee you uh, this is some wonderful aroma. I doubt that it was like Thanksgiving Day, the aromas of food. Could be, I guess. But these are wonderful, beautiful fragrances that are being poured out before the throne of God. And where does that fragrance come from in that vial? It comes from the prayers of 
God's saints. Your prayers, my prayers, the prayers of yesterday, the prayers of tomorrow. Listen, do we ever waste our time praying? You ever felt like that you wasted your time praying? That what was going to happen is what was going to happen, whether I prayed or not. Listen, I've had times where I prayed and I prayed and I prayed, God, please bless my preaching, bless my sermon. And I've got up here and I've preached and just preached my heart out. Nothing happened. I've had other times where it's like, oh, Lord, this hasn't been my best week. You know, I allowed myself to get a little discouraged. Kind of, what's the use? You know, I put together this sermon. I don't know if my heart's really in it, but, you know, i got to have something to say. I mean, you preachers, you understand what I'm talking about. It's like, hey, I don't know if I'm bringing my A game. I'm not even sure if it's my C game. And you get up and you preach, and God uses it mightily. And you just scratch your head, and sometimes you go, I wonder what's the use. Sometimes you pray. You pray for people, God, would you please touch their heart when they come to church on Sunday. Move them that they'll come and get right with God or get saved. And you pray and you pray and you agonize before God and they don't show up. Then you just say, all right, I'm tired of praying. I'm not going to pray. I'm tired of being discouraged. It just seems like that nothing happens. Then a month later, they show up at church. (laughs) You can't figure out God. But let me tell you something, your prayers are never, ever wasted. Even if God says, you know what, I hear you, I I care, but I'm not going to give you what you want. I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I have another plan. Those prayers are not wasted. Those times when you are hurting and grieving... And you feel like your heart is shredded. You've lost a loved one or you're going through a trial and you're just agonizing before God and weeping before Him. And it just seems like you cannot find comfort. It's like when our dog was alive and the storm and the lightning would come back before she became deaf. I mean, she'd hear the flash or she'd see the flash and she'd hear the thunder and she would go all over the house panting. And as she'd pant, her heart was just about to just come out of her chest cavity. And because of that heart racing, she'd get hot and she'd start drooling all over our hardwood floor. I mean, literally, it's just like, and she's trying to fight. You try to comfort her. She comes over here, tries to hide under the coffee table. That's nothing doing there. She goes over to this corner of the house and she's just going all over the house and you can just see her. She's trying to find a place where she's comforted. And if you've ever been through a real time of grief, you've felt that way as you talk to God and you think, if I just say the right thing, if I just pray the right way or have the magic formula that God's waiting for me to say, then I'll find relief, I'll find comfort, and the night passes and you never find that comfort. Are those prayers wasted? Not according to the Word of God. These prayers go in that vial and they're being poured out before the throne of God and all those millions upon millions of angels and those four and twenty elders and yes, those that have been redeemed begin to smell that aroma. And it's a beautiful thing. Why? Because God is enjoying 
the aroma of that worship. Worship's not supposed to benefit us. Now, thank God we do benefit from worship. It makes us spiritually healthy. It fulfills a void. If we are not worshiping the Lord, there's something inside of us that's empty. We're not fulfilling our purpose for being here. But worship is not always to benefit us. Listen, this is what happens when this seventh seal is open. Revelation 8, verse number 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. There was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. Prayer is an intimate time of communication between God and his redeemed sinners. And all this prayer is not wasted. Number four, we find here this recipe for worship around the throne of God. We find music in verse 8 and verse number 9. It says that they had golden harps. And in verse number 9, it says here that they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book. Listen, we could say a lot about music. And we have before, and we do from time to time. This is not going to be... a I'm not going to spend a bunch of time talking about this modern contemporary versus biblical music and worship. But I will say this, that music is a key ingredient in worship, but it is not worship. I've got a wood shop, and I've got a lot of key ingredients in my wood shop. I use my table saw a lot, but I'm not going to say of that table saw, that's woodworking. No, it's just a very important element of the whole thing. You've got tools and you've got hands and you've got technique that's all involved in woodworking. And the same thing goes for worship. To limit worship to any one ingredient. Listen, my wife made some wonderful food and, and so did, so did the rest of my family. Anna did a great job on sweet potato casserole. I told the kids that. I was a little scared about that because that's my favorite thing. Especially the casserole part. Have you ever been tempted to go through the line and just scrape all the top off? (laughs) Maybe one of these days I'll ask that for my birthday. (laughs) Don't just make the top. you got to have a little of the sweet potatoes, but anyhow. Any one ingredient is not going to be very good by itself. You can make a lot of good things with flour. Uh, Don't take a spoonful of flour and stick it in your mouth. I would not recommend that. It's kind of like I remember as a kid going, coming home from school, going into the pantry. And, you know, my my mom, she didn't keep all kinds of cookies. And, of course, if she bought them all, they'd be gone really fast, right? So I'm wanting something good for an after-school snack, and I'm craving chocolate milk. It's like, I'm going to make me some chocolate milk. I go into the, the closet pantry, and I find this can of Nestle's. Maybe it was Hershey's, I don't remember. And I brought it out, and I'm making me some chocolate milk, and I just noticed this isn't mixing up very well. 
So I mix a little faster, and it's just, it's got some floaties in it, but, you know, it's probably, maybe it's just out of date or something. And I take a big swig of that chocolate milk, and of course, you know what happened. I was a knucklehead, and I didn't know the difference between Nestle's Quick and Hershey's Cocoa Powder. Man, I am spitting that out in the sink. It was horrible. But you put that in with some other ingredients... And it's a very important, vital part, but it's not a standalone element. In the same way with, with music, what we call worship today comes from the church platform, not from the spirit. The spirit of man is not merely his emotions, it is his intellect, his will, his understanding, etc. It's all of the above. Jesus said, talked about worshiping him in spirit and in truth. So uh, Ephesians 5, verse number 19 says, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. I said I wasn't going to say a whole lot about music, but one thing I will say, this doesn't automatically distinguish what is good music and bad music, but this is an important distinguishing factor Good music and godly music emphasizes the melody, not the rhythm, not the beat, but the melody, and the melody is going to be a sweet melody. The very second place that you find music in the Word of God is when Moses comes back off of Mount Sinai, and him and Joshua, they hear a noise in the camp. And they say, one says, it's music, it's dancing. And said, no, it sounds like war, like someone overcoming. And they come down off the mountain, guess what? You got this Baal worship going on, and it looks like they're dancing, and it's like a rock concert with that heavy metal driving beat. It's right there in the Word of God. For anyone that cares and really wants to know the truth, you can find the difference between good godly music and the kind that the world, and the heathen-like. Listen, music is not really, you know, I talked about ingredients, but the truth of the matter is, music isn't really an ingredient in worship. It's more like the spoon that we use to stir the ingredients together. You know, you find it all there in Ephesians 5.19. You've got, uh, you've got instruction, You've got speaking, you know, the, the Colossians reference talks about teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the human spirit responds to music, that is our intellect, yes, our emotions, but also our will and our understanding. It's the package deal and music oftentimes just stirs all of that together. Modern Worship music does nothing more than to just create an emotional effect. Number five, let's talk about value and glory. Verse number 10, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, don't get ahead of me here on this. I understand that when we speak about worship, the value and the glory doesn't have anything to do with us, it has to do with Christ. But at the same token, 
as we find this here around the throne of God, we see that there is a future glory for God's people. And that's why God tells us in his word in Romans 8.18, he said, for I reckon, I think Paul might have been from southern Israel, southern Damascus, I, you know, southern Tarsus, I should say. Romans 8.18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Listen, when we start thinking about what Christ has done for us and what that's going to do for us, make us kings and priests to rule and to reign with Him, that glory moves our heart toward worship. But then, as I've already said, we find here in our text that the Lamb of God is worthy. The Lamb of God. You know who that is, don't you? That's Jesus Christ. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. True worship is focusing on the object of worship while we acknowledge what He has done for us. These four and twenty elders are worshiping and they're acknowledging that Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain, redeemed us unto God by His precious blood. Number, uh, number six. I got one more after this one. Number six. I'm saving the best ones for last. The book. Verses 1 through 5, we see this book that John is talking about. And folks, there are books in heaven. Books in heaven. I, you don't have to be a, a, a good reader. You don't even have to be much of a reader. I know nowadays people don't read like they used to. Uh, instead, they listen to things. And I know that reading and books are not as important. I, I will say this. I, it, it is kind of nice. I was able to clear a lot of books out of my bookshelves in my office. Why? Because I have all of those in my computer. And I can access them anytime that I want. In fact, I can do a search and find what I'm looking for within that book. And I thought, wow, that's a whole lot more valuable than spending two hours thumbing through the pages trying to find what I read five years ago. But books are an important thing, and there are books in heaven. Consider Revelation 20, verse number 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now notice Revelation 20, verse number 15. Very sobering words. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I wonder how many people that really down deep, they think they're going to be okay when they stand before God because their name was written on a church membership roll. Or maybe they filled out a baptism card, something that they did personally in a church, maybe... Pray to prayer. Yeah, I know, you know, the preacher says I need to be saved. Yeah, I remember when I was nine years old, I came forward and the preacher led me to the Lord. And you can tell all about what happened there. And I'm not trying to cause anyone to doubt their salvation that's truly saved. Okay? 
That's not my intent here. But I think that we all could agree that as we look around churches today, I find it very difficult to think that the churches around us are truly filled with regenerated, born-again believers. There's a lot of things this Bible here says will be the result if you get born again. Number one, you're not going to get away with living a sinful lifestyle. You may get away with it for a while, but God's going to chasten you. He's going to take you behind the woodshed. You're going to be one miserable human being. For somebody to say, I can live my life however I want to. I prayed a prayer when I was nine, and so I know I'm going to heaven when I die. And yet, there's nothing spiritually going on in the heart that concerns me, and it ought to concern you. Because the bottom line, when you stand before, it's not going to be the Peter before the pearly gates quiz that the jokes tell us that it's going to be. It's nothing like that. We're going to stand before this glorious sight, this awesome God, and there's not going to be any time to flatter or manipulate. You're not going to cram for that test. Whatever you did with Jesus Christ is already done, and He's going to open the book, and your name's either there or it's not. And if your name, look at it with me, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let me tell you something. The only thing that matters when this life is over is your name written in that book. Now this book here, not the book that's in heaven, not the book of life, but this book right here that is on this pulpit is essential in our worship. It is more essential than music. It is more essential than emotions. John 4, verse number 23 says, But the hour cometh, this is red letters, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible. That means Jesus spoke it to the woman at the well. The hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. Why is Jesus saying that? Because they had a tabernacle and a temple in Jerusalem. And there was a Levitical priesthood. And worship was about all surrounded those sacrifices in the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying that, hey, the hour is now that God's not interested in these uh, lambs and, and goats and all, all of these earthly sacrifices. He's looking for someone to worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's interesting how that Jesus spoke this to the woman immediately after a dispensational discussion had broken out. This woman says, well, our father said we're supposed to worship in this mountain. But the Jews say we're supposed to worship in this mountain. And you know what Jesus told her? You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Before Jesus died on the cross, salvation was definitely of the Jews. And even now, it's of the Jews because Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. Amen? And we have a Jewish book right here. Thank God for 
the, the Jewish people, they are beloved for the Father's sake. Because of Abraham and God's commitment to Abraham, all of that is wonderful. But there was a dispensational, a doctrinal discussion that had just broken out. And that's why the Lord is telling this woman, hey, things are getting ready to be different. If you don't study the Bible, then you have no clue the value and the importance of those things that Jesus said in John chapter number 4. Matthew 11, verse 27. Let me say this. This book here, just like in the passage that we read, Only the Lamb of God was worthy to open up that book. If I could spiritualize this just a little bit, this book here has to be opened. This is not something that you go and check out of a library or go buy it at Walmart and take home and start academically studying it. You can know this Bible from cover to cover, but until you open up your heart or until God opens up your heart, and you see yourself the way that you really are, there's not going to be any work of God in your heart and life. This is not an academic book. It's a spiritual book. Matthew 11, 27, Jesus said, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. Your heart... Your understanding has to be open to this book. And only Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit of God, can open your heart and understanding so that you truly see yourself as a lost sinner on your way to hell in need of a Savior, the Lamb that was slain, who shed His blood on the cross of Calvary. My last and final point, number seven. The recipe for worship, I want to end by talking about the triumphant victor. Verse number 9 of our text, it says, They sung a new song. What did that new song say? It said, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, and people and nation. Verse 12, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Folks, we have a slain, resurrected, triumphant lamb here who shed his blood for the redemption of us fallen sinners. Romans 5 verse number 9 says much more being justified, uh, much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Jesus rose from the dead. He is the triumphant victor. His blood, there is power in the blood of Jesus Christ to save any lost sinner. Jesus Christ wants to save you. He wants to give you the victory over sin, over self, over this world. Jesus Christ is 
the triumphant victor. And I close with this statement. You will never experience true worship until you've been redeemed. I think that's probably one of the biggest reasons why worship has to be drummed up so much in churches today because you got a bunch of people that have never truly been redeemed and they have to drum it up. They have to sing music and they have to have something that stirs their emotions because they can't relate to people around the throne here crying worthy, worthy, holy, holy, holy because Jesus doesn't really... Yeah, he was a nice example Nice guy, very loving guy, and they've been told all of that, but they don't realize just exactly who he is and what he has done. He is the Lamb of God that was slain for our sins to redeem us. But let me tell you something, that Lamb of God, his eyes are as a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. We in America, in this Laodicean church age, we can't even relate to the triumphant victor, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the majesty of the Lamb of God who was slain to redeem us from our sins. You'll never know true worship until you've been redeemed.